Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, trying to get some context for an understanding of the remarkable protests in China, triggered by anger over the country's COVID lockdown measures. You'll have seen, I'm sure, the footage shared on social media. People in Shanghai chanting, down with the Communist Party, and Xi Jinping, stand down. In Wuhan, where the pandemic started, demonstrators kicking over security barriers, while at universities in Beijing and Nanjing, there have been silent vigils. I'd like to welcome now William Hurst. He's Chonghua Professor of Chinese Development and Deputy Director of the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. Bill, welcome along. Nice to speak to you. Very nice to speak to you too. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the immediate trigger for these protests seems to have been a fire in a tower block on Thursday that killed at least 10 people that was related, apparently, to the COVID lockdown. What can you tell us about that? Well, the fire took place in the capital of Xinjiang, Urumqi, uh, on Thursday. Uh, and the issue around that in terms of COVID lockdowns is that it has been alleged with some some video evidence and, and other uh, support that the response by firefighters was hampered by the fact that the area where the tower block was was under lockdown. Uh, and so... In other words, fire engines couldn't get through, ambulances couldn't get through. Um, there have also been suggestions that residents had trouble getting out uh, because of the, the restrictions, meaning that they would have to stay in. And yes, as you said, a number of people died in the fire, a great deal of damage to the building as well. And you know, not clear whether the response would have been better uh, had there not been a lockdown, but certainly wouldn't have likely been worse. And so that seems to have been what set off at first some of the reaction, but I think it's actually spiraled beyond that. Mm. But just so we understand the nature of COVID lockdown in China, people have perhaps drawn comparisons with COVID lockdowns in the United Kingdom. Mm. This is on an altogether different scale, isn't it? Yes, by and large. So there, there are gradations of lockdown even in China, as indeed there were here. So we can see sort of weaker and stronger lockdowns. But the, the strongest version of lockdown is that you're not allowed to leave your apartment or, or house, that the door is actually sealed from the outside. And if you break the seal immediately, uh, quarantine officials will come and take you to a quarantine facility. That's the strongest form. Uh, a much more common form is that the housing compound or the block uh, of flats, the tower, is closed. Uh, no one can go in, no one can go out. And you know, anything that's delivered has to be left at a sort of centralized location at the front, and then you can come and collect it. But you can't leave, and no one can come in. A weaker form would be to say one person from every household can leave for a couple of hours every day to go shop for groceries uh, and other essentials, but otherwise no one should be going in or out. And yet a weaker form uh, says that you know schools are closed, most workplaces are closed, you don't have to stay at home, but you're encouraged to. Uh, there's strong regulations against entering public places, uh, particularly if you have a, a yellow or red code, you can't uh, on, on a phone app that you have to have. And also, um, just a general sort of prohibition against any public activity, but without actually curtailing the basic freedom of people to come and go from their own houses. So you know, there are all of these different gradations. And in fact, 
almost all of these are in force right now in different locations within China. So it's not as though there's one national policy that covers everything. It's actually locally quite differentiated, sometimes neighborhood to neighborhood or even street to street. uh, We see very different rules being applied. And we have this apparent trigger point. You're suggesting that the response to that awful incident has gone beyond anger at those particular deaths. Yes, I think so. Because I think what we've been seeing really for for a very long time, for decades, really about 30 years, are different kinds of strands of protest in Chinese society. So we see fairly regularly labor protests of different kinds. We see student protests and we see sort of urban governance protests, as well as these sort of more pointed generalized uh, political criticism of the regime or of the leadership from time to time. Uh, Now, what began as a protest against the fire response is really about urban governance. And we've seen that a lot around the COVID lockdowns in more limited ways in specific localities. People angry that, uh, for example, people with other health conditions haven't been able to get to hospital because either the hospitals won't take them or the ambulances don't come to locations that are under lockdown. We've seen issues around even food delivery and the ability of uh, deliveries to get through uh, in certain places or around schools being shut for ridiculously long periods of time and, and families frustrated at that. So these kind of urban governance issues have been bubbling around COVID and the lockdowns for, for quite some time. We've also then seen these labor protests break out more recently in Zhengzhou and in other places around issues related to factory lockdowns, workers' restriction of movement in and out of factories, and the failure of a number of employers to pay bonuses they promised people if they came to work in essential jobs during the lockdown. Then we've also seen student protests break out at about 30 or 40 different universities all over the country, first around kind of campus issues, One thing that's happened in a lot of places is universities have moved back online only. uh, And in some cases, they've sent students home from the dormitories and other university housing. But then the home localities where those students live are not allowing anyone to enter from outside the locality for fear of bringing the virus. So the students are being rendered kind of almost homeless between the, the university from which they're being evicted and their hometowns that don't want them coming back in. So there's a very difficult situation around that. There's other campus restrictions that they're upset about. And so we see these campus protests and student protests that have been breaking out. And then we've seen a few kind of spectacular incidents of more generalized or systemic criticism against the regime, like the famous uh, bridge protest in Beijing just before the party congress at uh, Sitongqiao, where the guy lit some things on fire and uh, put uh, signs over the side of the bridge. Many of the slogans on those signs, by the way, have been taken up in recent days by students and other protesters. And so what's interesting really in the last 48 hours is the way all these different separate threads have been interwoven around a common theme of anger at the lockdowns, anger at the anti-COVID measures, and frustration generally with the way things are going in Chinese society, economy, and politics. What I wonder is how long that sort of unity of different strands around a common theme or framing can last. I'm I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Mm. I'm not sure every listener will be familiar with the bridge 
protest. Just give us a bit more detail on that, please. So about two days before the start of the 20th Party Congress back in October, someone who has later been revealed, I think, to be, in fact, a physicist from Harbin in the northeast of China, set himself up on a bridge over a street, the way that uh, sort of highways are built around cities in Beijing. There are a number of bridges that cross over main roads where the highway travels over the road. Uh, and this is a, a large one just near the center of kind of the university district uh, of Beijing in the northwest of the city. He set himself up there and, and lit something on fire, it appears to have been a a stack of uh, tires uh, or something like this. Uh, and there's lots of smoke and fire in the background from the video of his protest. Then unfurled over the side of the bridge, a series of banners with slogans calling for the end of lockdown and for the Communist Party and for Xi Jinping to apologize for the lockdown measures and, and to care more about society in the view, at least, of the protester. And then he also read out the slogans through a megaphone before he was arrested and taken away, and then the banners taken down and so on. That seemed to be kind of a one-off. But what's happened in recent days is that people have picked up some of what he was saying and, and what's been said in a few other places sort of sporadically uh, in apparently isolated incidents, uh, and they've taken up those, those ideas and slogans and, and uh, formulations into a kind of more generalized frame. And so that's what's really interesting is that's, overlaid then onto this urban governance protest, which is then also picking up at least vague or, or loose solidarity with both the workers and the students. Do we know what's happened to him? To the person from the bridge, I don't know, except that he was taken into custody by authorities at the moment of the protest. Exactly who he was, I'm not quite sure. He's been identified online as this physicist. Uh, but I don't know for certain that it was in fact him, and I don't know what's become of him since then. I wouldn't imagine that he would escape without consequence. Uh, that was a very high-profile protest in a very sensitive location just before the start of the Party Congress. And most interestingly, a video managed to get out. Right? There's a great deal of attention paid inside China to trying to keep a handle on the spread of potentially seditious or... Uh, destabilizing content on social media platforms and so on. But somehow this got through and got through widely and, and uh, overseas as well, fairly quickly, then was suppressed on the, the domestic platforms, but was already picked up by the international media by that point. The specter of Tiananmen Square hangs over anyone, I suspect, who wishes to protest in China. But from your description of it, there have actually been quite a large number of protests. Those protests have been widespread now over many months and have had numerous causes. Is it simply the fact that people are no longer scared or that they are scared, but they're, they're so frustrated that they feel unable to contain their anger? I'm honestly not sure. I, mean, I think there have been a lot of protests every year for many years, uh, going all the way back to the 1990s, in fact, all the way back to 1989. What's interesting now, and what I wonder about now, is that if we look at the crowds that, that have turned out in, in Shanghai, in Lanzhou, in Urumqi, in Beijing, in different places, uh, on campuses, but also in, in major commercial areas, from what I've seen in the footage, and I've only seen what's been circulating on online videos, it looks like most of the protesters are probably young, 
they don't seem to be either workers or students, actually, in most cases. They look like sort of young professionals in their 20s and 30s. Now, if that's the case, if they're in their 20s or early 30s, they probably don't know much about 1989. Remember that that all discussion of that has been effectively suppressed for about the last 30 years. There was actually a lot of discussion of it, including from the government side, in the few years following June 4th. But you know, since about 1993 or so, 1992, 93, there's been no discussion in Chinese society of that. So it's quite possible that somebody who's 20 or 25 protesting now in Shanghai has no knowledge of what happened uh, in Tiananmen. Mm. Would there not be a, a folk memory of it? Anecdotes, perhaps, uh, handed down? Uh, quite limited, quite mm. limited. Young people often really wouldn't know. You could find out if you were really searching for the information, I suspect. And yes, people do talk about it occasionally in, in a more informal way. But the only people who will relate that usually to younger generations are those who have a direct experience or knowledge of it, which actually is a fairly small number of people given the size of the country. So it really has been effectively suppressed, I think, for probably the majority of young people. I don't know if there's a way to gauge how widespread actual knowledge of it is among people too young to have remembered it happening, but I don't think it's that widespread. My sense is that a, that a significant portion of, of young people wouldn't have at least a clear awareness of exactly what happened or how it unfolded. And when you reference young professionals, are these mm. people who would be sophisticated enough to get around China's censorship, to be aware of protests, for example, in Iran, or to be aware of the more liberal freedoms that we experience in the West? Mm. It's very hard to say. Mm. I, mean, I don't think people are, are completely ignorant or unable to get information. But at the same time, it's difficult to gauge how much anyone is looking at another country and thinking in terms of a kind of demonstration effect. You know, I don't think there's a lot of people in China looking, for example, at European societies or North American societies and thinking, oh, they have something there that we don't have. We'd like to have that. I just don't think there's that degree of uh, kind of reflexive comparison going on in most people's minds. What I have heard from a number of people, though, is that it's been a very jarring experience to watch the World Cup, which has been televised live in China. And the reason is that after so long of sort of the government adumbrating this mantra about locking down and staying free of COVID and preventing public gatherings and making sure everyone wears a mask everywhere and you know, often not allowing people out of their homes or neighborhoods to see tens of thousands of people in the stadium night after night without masks packed in close together. That has shocked a number of viewers across China and has made some people comment uh, to the effect that uh, it it feels almost as though they're watching something happening on another planet and they wonder why their planet is so different. And President Xi has sought to enforce a zero COVID policy. I mean, that's why these lockdowns in some cases have been so strict. The aspiration is for zero COVID. Yes, that's the aspiration, although that's not necessarily what they're getting. But yeah, for example, a, a city of 10 million people, if they have 100 cases or 300 cases, that's cause for a citywide lockdown and, and for all kinds of measures then to be brought in. 
it's just a different scale of sensitivity to that from what we see in almost any other country. Uh, and it's a policy that the, the government has repeatedly kind of stuck to and and also reinforced and, and doubled down on over and over again, really, over the last year. So it's going to be very, very hard to walk it back and suddenly say, oh, we're happy to live with the virus in lots of cases now, even if they decided tomorrow that they wanted to do so. And is this having a knock-on effect on the Chinese economy and therefore affecting the prosperity of people? Hugely. It's hard to quantify exactly what the economic effect has been. But anecdotally and sort of by impression, it's having a devastating effect on the economy. It's very hard for people to do anything at this point. There's a, a very significant number of people who are unable to go to work, uh, who are losing jobs, a lot of things that aren't happening economically that normally would be. You know, Everything from businesses and shops being closed, offices not working, supply chain difficulties, factories shutting down, lots and lots of economic effects, all of them negative. You talked about the protests around governance. Is that about corruption? It can be, but very often in the urban context, it's more about the delivery of basic services rather than perceived corruption on the part of local officials. In rural areas, it often is more about corruption or perceptions of corruption. Uh, it can be in urban areas too, but it's usually more about delivery of public services. What you're describing then is a, a series of grievances, but perhaps the catalyst was this terrible incident in which people died unable, so it is said, to escape a fire because of COVID, all exacerbated by COVID. But there is a risk for President Xi of contagion here, that, that this can coalesce into something much bigger for him. Oh, yes. I mean, I think there's already a, a great deal of alarm on the part of, of the central government and the leadership. But I think that What's been happening is really a, a coalescing around this common framing of COVID of these otherwise disparate strands. Now, what might happen in the next few days is that we see that unity of these strands fraying and the different threads kind of coming apart again and workers pro returning to protesting primarily or exclusively about workplace issues in their particular factory and students returning to protesting about specific issues on their, their individual campuses and, you know, people upset about governance and fire response or the ambulance response or school closures returning to protesting about issues in their particular city or neighborhood. And if that happens, then the, the threat of larger protests will really dissipate quite quickly. And I think the state will breathe a sigh of relief and won't have to do anything more really about this. If this sort of unity around a common framing continues or, or the protests continue to grow around this common theme, that would make the state, I think, much more unnerved and would be likely to trigger some form of more coordinated or decisive response. I've been actually rather surprised that there hasn't been a stronger or more a coordinated state response to these protests, I think we would start to see that fairly quickly if they don't begin to peter out within the next couple of days. Uh, and that response will probably be some kind of repression. And the bridge protest that you mentioned, that came ahead of the moment at which Xi confirmed his power, really consolidated his power. He's elevated himself to the level of 
Mao Zedong in China, and he is now, it would seem, at least until this moment, an unchallenged authoritarian leader. Well, yeah, he hasn't quite elevated himself to the level of Mao, but he's he's set himself up for at least another five, probably at least another 10 years in power at the top of the Communist Party. And he's also fairly effectively eliminated anybody, at least who could obviously be a challenger within the elite. Now, it could be that there are people that look like friends and supporters who could be challengers in disguise. And I think that would be rather interesting to see if that plays out. I don't think that that's likely, but it's always possible. You never know for sure as the game gets higher and higher stakes. But I think what he certainly tried to do at the 20th Party Congress was make sure that anyone who could possibly challenge him was retired, sidelined, or removed. But once people have got the taste for rebellion they may find that they enjoy it. They may find they want further freedoms. That in itself must be a threat to him. All of this, I think, is quite threatening to him and and to the party in general. The issue is, for them, how best to respond. And I think from the opposite side, what kind of response to anticipate? I worry that the danger of this interaction is, is not as well understood by everybody as as it could be. It's a very dangerous game, and it's not clear yet what the outcome might be. It's notable that the state is not reacting decisively yet, but I wouldn't say that it's not going to uh, if things continue to spiral in this way. And of course, there have been tensions over Taiwan, over the provision of semiconductors and microchips with a a company in South Wales being told that it can't sell to a Chinese company. There have been tensions between the UK and the US over the involvement of the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei. So how do the governments of those countries respond to this? Well, I mean, there, there are larger and longer term issues around things like technology dual-use technology, technology transfer, uh, issues of competition in parts of the technology sector, to which a lot of these other things are related. How should other governments respond to the current situation, I think, is yet not determined. And I think probably the best response for right now would be simply to continue observing and observing closely and with concern. Uh, But I don't think it would be especially helpful for governments of countries beyond China to weigh in as yet on on what's happening with these protests, Uh, in part because we simply don't know enough yet about what's really happening or how things might evolve. Bill, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Bill, or William Hurst, the Hua Professor of Chinese Development and Deputy Director of the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, which is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There's no big corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.